As always, we do ask a continued, really do ask a continued interest in your prayers uh, as we attempt to stand before you each and every Sunday morning. We uh, do appreciate very much the prayer that was offered, um, and we we will make one comment towards that that uh, you know, uh, Gary prayed about uh, attempting to counsel or instruct others. Um, sometimes it's a, it's a difficult thing to counsel someone. You ever heard the phrase, you ever heard the phrase, if I was you, I would do. Or, you know what you need to do? As a pastor, and sometimes even as a father or a husband, I've shied away from saying, you know what you need to do? Because when you start telling people what they need to do, you're responsible for the outcome if they do what you tell them to do. You ever thought about that? I, you know what? We're going to set up this young couple and see what happens. And then you're going to be responsible for the outcome. Oh, they got married. What happens if it don't work out? You're responsible for that? Oh, no, that didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, it's it's uh, there. There's a difference between count cell, S-E-L, and count seal, C-I-L. And one is uh, uh, giving of advice, and the other is laying down law. Um, I can think I can say right now, you know what you need to do? Turn with me to Genesis 49. I'll take responsibility for uh, the consequences of this. Last week, we began a thought, uh, really, with the overwhelming idea that Jesus is coming, so what? Jesus is coming. What, what does that mean to us? And really, you could you could preach an entire series, which I may end up doing, uh, pointing to the fact uh, or, or, or reminding us of of why it was a good thing that he came the first time, and why it's an even better thing that he is coming back. He is coming. What does that mean? He is coming. He's coming back. How should that affect us? What impact should that have on our life on just a day-to-day basis? Well, in Genesis 49, uh, when Jacob was blessing uh, his children at the end of his days, he made this statement concerning Judah that he says in Genesis 49 and verse 8 that Judah... Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. He reminded in verse 10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Uh, A scepter shall not depart. In other words, a uh, kingly presence shall not depart from Judah and a lawgiver. What you ought to do. I had no I, I had no intention of tying that together. But a lawgiver, what you ought to do, shall not uh, depart from his feet until Shiloh come. So Jesus is coming. How good and how great is that? We looked at one portion of that uh, a little bit last week. Uh, we want to kind of continue with this because... Uh, the thing is, the, the scepter, the kingly reign, the, the authority 
shall not depart until Shiloh come. And essentially, upon Shiloh then will be the kingship, and upon Shiloh will be the authority. I'd like to notice Hebrews chapter 1. Um, the Apostle Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 1, he's actually quoting Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 4, 5, 6 and 7. 45, verses 6 and 7. Paul is quoting here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says in verse 8, But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God. Notice the Son is called God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. How long is the throne of Christ going to last? Forever and forever. And really, how long has he been a king? Forever and forever. See, when he was born king of the Jews, he was a king to start with. He was born king of the Jews, and when he comes back, he shall be seen as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice this, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Every king in the Bible was in some way or some manner anointed to be king. There was, uh, a, there was a public declaration or a public recognition that this individual was to be the king, at least for that period of time, over Israel over or over the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. In some way or another, there was a public outcry, a public recognition, this is the king. Now, the Bible here says, in quoting Psalms, but there's an allusion to other passages as well, that God has anointed him with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Um, we may get the idea then that this may maybe is just some physical anointing of oil like they did in the Old Testament, but it goes it goes beyond that actually. We need to remember that a lot of times the things that are done in the Old Testament were symbols or pictures, or types of something greater that was to come. Uh, notice for me in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, verse 37. Well, verse 36. I like this one as well. Acts chapter 10 and verse 36 says, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel... Preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. 
So wait a minute, I thought he was anointed with oil, and here it says he was anointed with the Holy Ghost. Which one is it? It's both. You turn to the Old Testament and you read about that oil that filled that uh, seven-handled lampstand, that fueled light, that filled the tabernacle. The oil in the Old Testament is oftentimes emblematic or representative of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, What gives us the ability to understand the Bible? It's the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, What has allowed you to see God as a, a great and mighty God? What has allowed you to see Jesus Christ as ruler and Lord of all? The Holy Spirit. It's not been my teaching. My my teaching is pathetic. It's not been your understanding. Because human beings will attempt to explain away what they don't like to be real. Not what they don't understand, what they don't like. He has anointed Jesus Christ, not just with some material oil, but without measure, the Bible will tell us, Without measure, he has anointed him with the Holy Ghost. And when he says without measure, it's just another way of the Bible saying unlimited. You and I have been given a measure, as the Bible says, a measure of faith. There's a bit we've been given. We've been given a measure of understanding. There is a little bit we've been given. The Holy Spirit is with us with measure at times because there are times when we feel to be alone and without God, though we really aren't. But Jesus Christ has been given it without measure. So with that in mind, with that thought and that that concept, thy scepter uh, is, is a scepter of righteousness. You've been anointed with uh, oil of gladness above thy fellows. And the the term fellow just really has reference to anybody that's uh, in in your personal circle, your comrades, folks like you. Jesus exceeds everybody and everything he ever comes in contact with. As a matter of fact, when you read continually through the book of Hebrews, the, the theme of the book of Hebrews is the theme better. Everything about what we have today is better than what they had in the Old Testament. Every single thing. And if you take, if you take the Gospels beginning there and just read through the New Testament, specifically the four Gospels, Jesus Christ is always using this phrase, a greater than Solomon is here, a greater than Jonah is here, a greater than the temple is here. And when Paul starts in Hebrews 1, He starts talking about the angels, and he starts talking about the prophets, and he starts talking about the fathers, and his ultimate reason for teaching that is a greater than the angels is here, a greater than the fathers is here, a greater than the prophets is here, a greater, better, more than them is here, and his name is Jesus Christ. Everything about him, he is above everybody he is around. So let's turn, let's turn to the Old Testament. Because we're talking about the kingship in one instance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll make reference to, uh, 
two particular instances in the Old Testament to the anointing of kings. The first one is found in 1 Samuel chapter 10 because this is the first king to be anointed in Israel. Surely you know who this feller is. We've, we've made reference to this guy many, many times. The first king of Israel was Saul, son of Kish. Saul was requested by the nation of Israel. Maybe not in name, maybe not in person, but just in general practicality. See, over here in Genesis, God makes a promise. God makes a promise that the scepter shall not depart, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. So, Israel, hang on, Shiloh's coming. In other words, church, Jesus is coming back, right? Hang on. But he's not here today. May not necessarily be here tomorrow. May not be here next week. At the time that this is written in Genesis, it'll be 1,600 years before Christ comes. And since He came the first time, and Peter writes to us, in the last days there shall be scoffers saying, where is the promise of His coming? It's been another 2,000 since Peter wrote that. What seems to be the problem then with human beings? The problem with human beings is not understanding sometimes. The problem with human beings is not listening sometimes. The problem with human beings is impatience. God does not get impatient and in a hurry like we do, right? Hey, I got patience. I don't mind. As long as I can have it day by five, I'll be all right. As long as I can have my answer by the time I get through praying, instead of three hours, three days, three weeks, how long did the promise that God gave to Abraham that thou would have a son, how long did that take to come to pass? Ten years? Twenty years? Twenty-five years? What was it? Joseph is down here in prison. Not his fault that he's there. But how long is he down there? He's down there 13, 15, 17 years? Our problem is impatience a lot of times. We want patience right now. And here comes this answer. Uh, scepter shall not depart. Or here comes, here comes the promise. The scepter shall not depart, nor a lawgiver from between thy feet until Shiloh come. Alright, what are we going to do? We're going to get over here in the book of Samuel. And Israel's going to look at Samuel and they're going to say, Thou art old and well stricken in age. And thy sons are an absolute disaster. Thy sons walk not before thy laws and thy commandments. Uh, Samuel wasn't the only one to have foolish children. Eli had foolish children. Hophni and Phinehas were foolish children of Aaron, I think. Prove me wrong on that. I probably am wrong. Prove me wrong. That's just a way of kind of getting you to read the Bible. What you ought to do is prove. Now, um, so the Israel says in, in 1 Samuel, 
Thou art old and well stricken in age. We're going to forget. Right now, we're just going to forget about Shiloh. We're just going to put the promise of his coming off to the side. And we're just going to kind of come over here and just do our own thing for a little bit. Would that be all right, Lord? Oh, yeah. There's That's some groaning on that one. And they said, give us a king like all the other nations. When we get through reading about King Saul, not only King Saul, we're going, we're going to read this reference about King Saul. In a little bit, we'll read a reference about King Jehu. We're not going to delve into their lives. That's not, that's not the purpose of this. But we are going to notice something that Saul and a lot of these kings are representative of man-made kingdoms. Many of them did not reign very long. Well, I kind of struggle with how to present this one. Because Saul, Saul was king until the time he died. But shortly into his kingship or into his reign, the anointing of God was taken from him. So he really was only king in position. He was not a king as a person. Does that make sense? He occupied that position, but really he was just a warm body filling a cold spot. Until David would be king. So some of them didn't reign very long at all. Most of them didn't reign very well. And that's true about that. Most of them did not reign very well. Even in the good reign of David and Solomon, remember, remember, there is enough good things in David and Solomon to point us to Christ, and there's enough terrible things to show us why He needed to come. But after Solomon's reign... Solomon had a a, a foolish son named Rehoboam. And I think Solomon sort of kind of saw this when he's writing, you know, Ecclesiastes and he says, all the great accomplishments that I do, all the great things that I do, what does that matter in the scope of things if the man that comes after me is a fool? We see this all the time in our political arena. Here comes a president, they do something. Here comes a person after him. person after him is a fool. And everything the man before him accomplished, the person after him tears down. And, and, and so here's Solomon, I think, kind of, kind of seeing this because Rehoboam, when he comes after Solomon, really makes a disaster of stuff. And it's not long after that where the twelve tribes then split. And they get ten northern tribes become their own little thing, and the two southern tribes are their thing, Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes. The ten northern go off and do their own thing. And if you trace through the history of Israel after the split, there's not one good king ever in the ten northern tribes. Ever. The southern, two southern tribes, they have a good one, they have a bad one, they have a good one, they have a bad one. It vacillates back and forth. Nothing ever happens good in the northern kingdoms. So stay below the Mason. No, we, that's, that's not that. Here's the point, though. 
Many of them didn't, didn't rain for very long. If they did rain long, they didn't rain well. This is all emblematic. This is all pictorial. This is all seen in human kingdoms all down through the years. I don't care if it was the kingdoms of Israel or the kingdoms of men. Alexander the Great sat down at what the age of uh, 31, as historians tell us, and cried. Because in his day there were no more kingdoms or no more lands to conquer. At 31, he sat down and said, my life is over. Of course, it wasn't long after that that he died of fever in Babylon. But uh, And his men who had followed him so long, they kind of just got tired of it. Thank God that men at some point in their life get tired of fighting and arguing. Wish it were so in, in our day. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, there's something that occurs. And it, it may be something that's very easily overlooked if it's not pointed out to you. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 says, that then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? So here we have the anointing of King Saul, the king in Israel. Did you notice he was anointed with oil? Saw that, right? But he was anointed with oil out of a vial. You see that? What difference does it matter? Hmm? Don't know. Hold on. That's okay. Uh, First Kings. Um, second, second Kings chapter 9. Second Kings chapter 1. Excuse me. 2 Kings 9, verse 1. 2 Kings 9, verse 3. Jehu is to be anointed. Jehu is to be anointed uh, during the time of Elisha. But Elisha is not the one anointing him. Elisha sends his servant down to anoint him. But you want to notice there in 2 Kings 9, verse 1, that it says... Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins and take this box of oil. See that? Box of oil is used in verse 1. Box of oil is used in verse 3. All right, preacher. Make your point. Uh, the term vile in, uh, that's laid out here in 1 Samuel 10, same term box. It's the same Hebrew word for box. It's the only time in the Old Testament that this word vile appears. I've told y'all before that it's very important what translation of the Bible you read. Not sometimes just because of, of the doctrine that is taught in it, but sometimes just the simple words that are used. It's the only time vile is used. So what, do we, what, what comes to our mind when we think of a vial? Think of something round and cylindrical, something maybe made of glass, or something maybe made of pottery. Or in this case, a box. The only other time that the term vial appears in the Bible is in the book of Revelation. Now, some of you with your little digital devices right there who are already a step ahead of me and you're searching for the term vial or vials, plural, you ain't going to find it anywhere except here in 1 Samuel 10 and in Revelation. And every time 
with the exception of one time in Revelation, the vials that are there carried by the angels are pouring out the wrath of God upon this earth. Every single time. There's only one vial that is offered. I believe it's Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. Yeah, Revelation 5, 8. There's a golden vial full of odors, full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. If you can't take the depravity of man and the grace of God and fit it into that verse, you ain't seen it yet. What does Paul say concerning the ministry when he talks to the church at Corinth? He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What am I? I'm a pot of clay, right? I've got a treasure in me. That treasure is golden. But I'm, I'm just some pot of clay. That's what my prayers are coming to God. Some pot of clay offering up something to God that if it wasn't for the grace of God in and on me, my prayers would mean nothing. Solomon, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, Sam, uh, Samuel anoints Saul out of this vial or maybe this box or maybe this earthen vessel to be king. Follow me, follow me down this rabbit hole and let's see what happens here. How many of y'all have read the New Testament Gospels? Hey, you read most of them. How many of y'all have read about the times that Jesus Christ was anointed by people in the New Testament? Huh? Matthew 26, Matthew chapter 26, verse 7 says, Matthew 26, verse 7 says that there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. And some folks objected to this. Remember that? Notice what Jesus says about this. Verse 12 of Matthew 26. He says, For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. See that? Notice that? Alright. Mark 14. Mark 14 verse 3 says, And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. Mark 14 verse 8 says, She hath done what she could. She is come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Are you following me with this? I'm following you, preacher, but I'm just blind as a bat. Hang on. Shiloh's coming. Luke chapter 7, verse 37 and verse 38. Y'all little digital fingers just clicking away. When you find it, say amen. Most of us are there. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house brought an here we go again, an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. A lot of things going on here. John 12. John chapter 12, verses 3 and verses 7. John chapter 12. 
verse 3 and verse 7. John 12, verse 3, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Verse 7, Then said Jesus, Let her alone against the day of my burying. Hath she kept this? There's something we need to notice about this. Saul was anointed with ointment that came just out of a box or a vial. Some man-made contraption. And we said that though they reigned, they didn't reign for very long in some cases, but they also didn't reign forever, right? What did they anoint Jesus' body for out of these human boxes? I, right, I told you five times what they anointed his body for. What? For his burying, for his burying, for his burying. How long did he stay dead? Not very long. Three days, not forever. Huh? How about that? Isn't that something at least worth considering? Because in Psalm chapter 2 and the ninth verse, Psalm chapter 2 verse 9 says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How great and mighty is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is so mighty that He shall rule and reign forever, and that all those that oppose Him, He will dash in pieces like a potter's vessel. He will come through with a rod of iron and smash in pieces all nations and kingdoms and people that oppose Him. They are nothing but man-made honors. They are nothing but man-made tributaries. Shiloh was coming. Unto Him shall the gathering of the people be. And the scepter that He has is a scepter that shall reign in righteousness. And when he went to the grave, he went there three days, and that was enough. Because Peter himself would say on the day of Pentecost that God has raised His Son from the grave because He was not worthy that death should be holden of Him. He conquered death, destroyed death, and smashed it in pieces. The reason that we can lay ourselves down at the day of death and close our eyes in peace is because Jesus Christ our Savior has already crossed that river for us. He has already gone into the grave for us, and He's already come out of the grave for us, having defeated death, hell, and the grave, and the devil himself all at one time. And when He comes back the final time, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death itself, that you shall see that death will forever be gone. Why? Shiloh is coming. Now, now let's turn to a man named David. First King, uh, First Samuel chapter 16. In First Samuel chapter 16, Saul is sent to house of Jesse. 
He sent to the house of Jesse in 1 Samuel 16 to anoint the next king over Israel. The anointing has been taken away from Saul and be given to David. Here, here, here uh, Samuel gets to Jesse's house and Jesse parades before him seven of his children. When Prophet Samuel sees Eliab the oldest, Samuel does just like we would do. And he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me because he looks upon his countenance, he looks upon his height, he looks upon his stature, he sees what a handsome man he is, he sees how strong possibly he is, and he judges everything about God's will based on physical appearance. That's exactly what happened with Saul. Saul was chosen to be king, not because he was good, not because he was great, not because he was a man after God's own heart, not because he was a good leader, but because he was head and shoulders above everybody else, looked handsome, was beautiful, and everybody liked him. And yet the day that Samuel the prophet showed up to anoint Saul, they couldn't find him. Remember that? He was hidden. You know the Bible tells us where he was at? It says that he was hidden among the stuff. You know that was in the Bible? Did you know that phrase was in the Bible? He was hidden among the stuff. How much stuff is in your life that you're hiding under? The Lord tells Samuel the prophet, look not upon his height, look not upon his stature, look not upon his countenance. He says, for God judges not as man judges. Man judges on the outward appearance, but God judges on the heart. So then where's the one you want to be king? Because if this is not it, who is he and where is he at? It's, it's a nobody. It's somebody that nobody else would have wanted. It's just a little lad who's down here in his father's pasture caring for sheep. But you don't, you don't want that kid. He's a nobody. There is somebody that uses nobody. And God is a somebody. And He's always got room for nobody. That's you. That's me. There was a time when this baby was born to a poor family, a bunch of nobodies, in a little nowhere place, a little stable. Nobody paid attention to it. Nobody important. Except the God of glory. And if nobody ever pays attention to you except the God of glory, you've got all the attention you'll ever need. And it says here in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13, that then Samuel took the horn of of oil. Now wait a minute, did you catch that? Ah, wait a minute. We're not we're not being we're not being anointed with a little box here. We're not being anointed with a piece of pottery here. We're being anointed with a horn of oil. 
and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Fast forward to the next generation in 1 Kings chapter 1. Fast forward to the next generation in 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 39. And it says this in 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 39, And Zadok the priest took an horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. A horn of oil out of where? Out of the holy place. See, this anointing that's coming ain't coming from men. This anointing that's coming is not coming from popular opinion. This holy anointing is coming from God Himself. He's not being anointed with some box, some book. He's not being anointed with some picture. It says He's anointed with oil out of the tabernacle in a horn. A ram's horn. Uh, you know, in, in Bible times, we know that they would take these ram's horns and somehow hollow these things out and make trumpets out of them. I don't know how they did it. This is this ought to be just puzzling. You, you ought to be able to just step away from this sermon right now just for a second and just ask yourself, if human beings in prehistoric times were so ignorant and foolish, how in the world did they do what they did that we can't even do now? You say, well, I can hollow out a ram's horn. Sure you can. I'd like to see you and a group of your buddies go out here and build me a pyramid, though. They still don't know how those things were made. So much for the idea that people back then were foolish and idiotic. I think people back then were way ahead of us. It's a story for another time. You say, what's this got to do with any of what we're talking about? David was anointed with, the whole, with, with a horn of oil. Solomon is anointed with a horn of oil. Turn now to the New Testament, to the book of Luke. Turn now to Luke chapter 1. Zechariah, the father, John the Baptist, is going to prophesy here. And I told you that in the Old Testament, in the day of Samuel anointing Saul, term vile is only used that one time there. So, remember that? Well, now we come over here to the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, and we got something used in the New Testament only one time. Kind of, it kind of gives you the picture here of you got a whole bunch of information on one side, and it's all going to rush straight forward, and then all of a sudden it's going to collapse in one point. Kind of like a funnel. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant. 
It's the only time the term horn appears in the New Testament. Only time. You know why? Jesus has come. And the whole of everything up to this point has been all about Him. And when He got here, it closed down. And here He is. That's all you need to know. Every horn in the Old Testament points to this person. Points right to the fact that Jesus has come. In the Old Testament, you can turn to uh, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2. You can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and you can find out that when God exalts the horn of an individual, the meaning is that He confers uh, great power and prosperity upon this person. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10, it has these words to say, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Amen. Out of heaven shall He thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and shall give strength unto His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. See, we're not talking about... Uh, I'm going to get ahead of myself just a little bit. Let's, get, let's go one more. But what I want you to do now, I want you to turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Verse... 18. Psalm 89 verse 18 says, For the Lord is our defense. And the Holy One of Israel is our King. The Holy One of Israel is an Old Testament name. Jesus Christ. Don't believe me? Go home, look in your strong concordance, trace it out and find it. I promise you. The Holy One of Israel is Jesus Christ. Then thou spakest in vision to thy Holy One and says, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. How many that are mighty? One. How many? One. Why, why do you keep saying that? Well, because some people don't understand the definition of the word one. It's that simple. It's not Jesus plus the preacher. It's not Jesus plus the preacher plus the Sunday school. It's not Jesus plus the preacher plus the youth minister plus the Sunday school plus the track society. It's none of that. It's mighty is in one. I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. Moses said that God would raise up of the nation of Israel one out of thy brethren, he would raise up one. And unto him ye shall hearken. That's why they asked the question in the New Testament, art thou that prophet that should come? They didn't ask, are you, are you a prophet? Who cares about a prophet? There's a bunch of prophets. Are you that prophet? Are you the prophet? Are you the one prophet we've been looking for? Yes, Shiloh has come. Notice what he says here. Thou speakest in vision. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant. And with my holy oil have I anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him. Nor the son of wickedness afflict him. 
And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. So. You've got this image here of this horn of something that is exalted. You've got this image here of this horn is one that the enemies shall not beat him down. His enemies shall not overtake him. The wicked ones shall not afflict him. In Psalm 75, David says this concerning the wicked. And maybe he even looks at us sometimes. And says in Psalm 75 and verse 4, Psalm 75 and verse 4, I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly. And to the wicked, lift not up the horn. Lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. See, when, when God raises up a horn, He exalts it. But... When I blow my own horn, and you blow your own horn, and you lift up your horn, it means we are indulging in arrogance and rude and disrespectful behavior. We were having this conversation yesterday at the house, and it's just come to my attention that everybody I know that's a Christian is a fool. What? Everybody I know that's a Christian is a fool. Ain't none of us got any sense. Men are lazy and oftentimes don't take the lead in the home. Because sometimes we don't know how to teach. We know how to command but we don't know how to teach. Well, it's real quiet in here. And all the wives said, Amen. But it's hard to lead and teach a wife who don't know how to listen. It's hard to be the head of the home and lead a family when a wife says, Shut up and don't tell me what to do. Every Christian I know is a fool. Because we all exalt ourselves against our spouse and ultimately against God. And He's promised us when we exalt ourselves, we will be abased. And we are seeing the effect of that in our nation right now. Because as she stands up and says, don't tell me what to do, and he refuses to lead, now we've got this generation running around out here who don't like anybody and anything. There's a warning here to all of us. When you lift up your horn, blow your own horn, magnify yourself, be careful. Because God's going to put it down. And you know, really, in my life and in your life, the best person to lose to is God Almighty. When He breaks us down and He brings us down, He brings us to repentance. That's the best place we can ever be at. Notice this. Horns in the Bible uh, not only denote that God has raised up something and uh, He's 
prospering something, but horns in the Bible often represents uh, powers of political armies and powers of political people. So you can turn to Daniel chapter 7, and you can read all about these goats and these rams and the four horns and the three horns and things like that that fight against each other there in Daniel chapter 7, these nations that rise up. You can even read about it in Revelation, you know, and it'll tell us in Revelation the ten horns are ten kings. So it's fairly kind of straightforward. Something I noticed about this, or something I, I enjoyed, I guess I could say about this, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a statement here. Daniel chapter 7 and verse uh, 21. He says, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. You know who the saints represent here? Saints represent saints. <laughs> he said it's kind of, hey, it's just kind of straightforward with this. In other words, in our day, have you ever noticed that everything gets to be accepted in this world except the teaching of Christ? Everything gets to be defended in this world except the teaching of Jesus Christ. You start talking about Confucius, you start bad-mouthing Muhammad, you start bad-mouthing Buddha, you start bad-mouthing all the rest of these pagan false gods out here, and guess what? Your head's on the chopping block. But if you start bowing the knee and praying to Jesus, all of a sudden, uh, media's got something wrong with that, president's got something wrong with that. You know, president bathes the White House in the rainbow colors because we're all trans-diverse here. Well, we're all diverse except the Christians. And if you didn't catch what I just said, you've missed what they teach. They're not teaching diversity. They're teaching conformity to them. Because if you really accepted diversity, you'd also accept the Christians. See that? Daniel chapter 7 reminds us that this horn, the horns of the men of this world, the horns of the powers of this world, they are at odds Against Christ. And they will make war with us. But listen to what this verse says. This verse says, I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until. Oh, don't you like that word? Don't you just love that word until? Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. This world may overtake us for a little bit. They may shut our churches down. They may push us into the forest. They may hang us from the trees. They may draw and quarter us. As is said in Hebrews chapter 11, that many of the saints lost their lives. They were beheaded. They were crucified. They were hung upside down. They were dropped in boiling oil. Take your pick. All that will continue until until the great horn, God Almighty, comes in the last day and dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel and sets everything right. There is no horn, there is no power, there is no political enemy greater than God Almighty. Moving on, 
horns uh, that we're talking about here. I'm very quickly running out of time, so I want to get a couple of things here on this. But as you approach this tabernacle, as you approach this, this, this tabernacle that Israel had in the wilderness, remember out in front of that tabernacle, there's this brazen altar out there where they offered these sacrifices on it. This square object out there. On the corners of these this square objects were things that looked like animal horns. They're the horns of the altar. The Bible tells us that in example Exodus 29 and verse 12 that they took the bloods of the bullocks and they sprinkled them on these horns. But the Bible also tells us in Psalm 118, in Psalm 118, the Bible tells us, notice Psalm 118 verse 27, God is the Lord, which has shewed us light, Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. That's a, that's a pretty gross image, actually. Uh, do, y'all, do y'all actually realize just exactly how gross Old Testament worship was? I mean, by the time they got done with worship that day, it was a filthy, disgusting, nasty mess. You know, you have these priests up here slitting the throats of these lambs just as fast as they can. You know, they got they got a slit one for every family in Israel. There's three and a half million people out there. This is not that we're just doing one thing, one for every family or one for the nation of Israel. I mean, this is an involved process and blood's flying everywhere, all over the priest, all over the ground, all over the altar, just everywhere. And now we, we, we throwing something up here on the fire and setting it on fire and then we're taking this other thing and we're putting it up on the altar and tying it up on here. And all Israel gets to see this dead animal hooked up to the horns of the altar. See, Zechariah said God has given us a horn of salvation. We talk about the politics in the Bible. We talk about kingdoms in the Bible. You know, the Republicans may lose again. The liberals may lose again. The conservatives are going to lose. The libertarians are going to lose. The white party, the green party, the blue party, the pink party, everybody's going to lose again. Jesus didn't come down here to establish a political party. He has a kingdom, but it's not of this world. Christ Jesus is a mighty soldier. He's a mighty warrior. But He's not coming down here to fight Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and and fight the, the, the South Americans and the North Americans. He's come up here to fight one person. The devil himself. And if it wasn't for God's grace, He'd fight you. You've got this dead thing now stuck to the horn of the altar. Right? I know Christ is the Lamb. I know He represents that. Right? But as I'm thinking about this, if He represents that horn that's on the altar, what represents what's tied to Him? See, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you'd be that dead thing tied to the altar. Right? I mean, what does Peter say in Second Peter? But concerning Jesus Christ, when He came, took our sins in His body and nailed it to the tree. 
You see, just as this dead thing is tied to the horn there on the altar, you and I are tied to Christ for the rest of our life. We are tied to Christ because God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. We are tied to Christ in that Christ came down from heaven not to do His own will, but to do the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. We are tied to Christ forever. For when Christ went to the cross, we went with Him. When Christ died, we died in Him. When He went to the grave, we went with Him. And when He was raised again the third day, we were raised with Him. And when He went back to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, we sat down with Him. We are tied to Christ, this horn of our salvation, forever. The very idea that an individual can lose what God has done for him is foolishness. It's heresy. The very idea that you can undo the doing of God. Well, maybe you shouldn't blow your horn in that direction. I'm going to give you one more. In 1 Kings, 1 Kings uh, First Kings David is kind of old, and he hadn't, hadn't exactly anointed Solomon to be king yet. David's got a son, Solomon's stepbrother, named Adonijah. Y'all remember Adonijah? And Adonijah realized, well, Daddy hadn't come down here and done what he's supposed to do. So that was, that's, of the greatness that David is, the one thing that we do notice about David was David was inconsistent. He was just terribly inconsistent. He had mercy on one and no care for another. He was a foolish father. And all the dads said, Amen. And so Adonijah says, You know what? My father has not uh, fulfilled his duty of selecting the next king. I guess I tell you what, I'm going to gather my friends together and I'm going to gather some priests together and we're going to go down here and I'll just have a priest anoint me and I'll be the next king. So they got this little party going on down the street here. Word travels back up to a lady named Bathsheba. Y'all remember Bathsheba, right? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's now married to David and has borne him a son named Solomon. And she comes knocking on the door and says, Buddy, you better pay attention to this. Because just as soon as Adonijah gets to be king, he's probably going to come over here and kill Solomon. You might need to do something about this. So David, though reluctant in life to do a lot of things, Rose up, called Zadok the priest that I read to y'all earlier. Got this horn of oil, and we anointed Solomon. Word travels down there to the party that David has anointed someone else king now. And all of a sudden, everybody that was having a good time runs out. There's a couple of people left. Adonijah's one of them, but there's a man named Joab who's left. Now y'all remember Joab. Joab was a mighty man in David's army. When Absalom was fighting against David, Joab was standing up for David saying, Kill this kid! And David, as a typical father, said, I can't hurt my son. And Joab says, You give me one second and I'll take care of this. And Joab actually did. It, it, was, it was a nasty mess. Joab, this dummy now, who's left David's side, he's now down here with Adonijah. 
And word comes that Solomon is now king. And now we're going to see this little party that everybody's having as a problem. Place clears out. Adonijah and Joab kind of left holding the bag, so to speak. When the trouble comes, all the friends who promised to help you with this kind of leave you with the ticket. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 28 says, Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah. Though he turned not after Absalom, and Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the horns of the altar. What is he doing? He's running down here to the place of sacrifice grabbing hold to the horns of the altar, saying, spare my life. God, have mercy on me. See, there's a a horn of salvation that has been raised to God's people that will deliver them from death, hell, and the grave at the final day. All of us look to that, do we not? All of us look to the time that we will stand before God for all eternity, being delivered from the problems and pitfalls of this life. But friends, what do we do now? That horn of salvation is even available to us now in our daily life, in our daily walk here on this earth. Notice in... uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18 has this to say. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. You see, Jesus hasn't just done something for us eternally. Jesus has done something for us now. Which of us hasn't needed Christ right now? Which of us has not had to stop and pause at some point during our day, during our week, during our month, during our lifetime, and had to stop and say, look what a mess I've made, God have mercy on me. Have we not all had to do that? We have to be careful. We have to be careful for wanting mercy for ourselves and not mercy for others. Here is this horn of salvation. Here is this horn of deliverance. And if you call upon Christ and say, Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner, what should I do? Ah, well... I know what you did. You ever noticed how we like to, uh, you ever notice how we like to talk about what other people did? But we like to talk about what I intended to do. We want everybody to judge us based on our intentions. I know I screwed up. I know I messed up. I know, but I really intended. 
But then we want to look at somebody else and say, well, you may have intended, but you didn't, and look what you did. I know Peter intended to walk to the Lord all the way on the water, but what he did was got about three steps off the boat and began to sink. Right? But I know that Peter was the only one that got out of the boat. So he may have failed, and he may have failed big time, but everybody else failed to even do anything. Jesus is coming. He is coming in the end to deliver us from this wicked world. But the good news is, is to His people, He's not just coming in the end. He comes to us each and every day. He comes to us in our darkest time and in our darkest hour, in our roughest trouble, in our roughest turmoil. He walks upon the water of that which is billowing high over us and looks down and says, it ain't so bad up here. It ain't so bad where I'm at. Jesus is coming. So what? Jesus is coming. Amen, ain't it great? Thank you for your good attention this morning.